If you open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I think there are certain songs and hymns that kind of lend themselves to this. That song is one of those, kind of like some, some of the hymns that we sing that, you know, as it kind of increases, you know, if we were at a football stadium, it would be appropriate for us just to start screaming and yelling. Um, if I did that, I'm sure many of you would freak out. Um, and uh, some of you would have a heart attack because uh, I, I can get loud. But anyway. Um, but anyway, that was just uh, here, being able, again, to sit up front and hear the congregation sing that and then bust out in the parts. I mean, it's just, it's just really good. It just really lifts up your heart, and uh, it's very encouraging. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we just thank you so much, Lord, for your grace and kindness and love. Father, as we were reminded as hundreds of years ago, as the Reformation took place, Father, you moved in the hearts of certain men giving them an extra measure of courage and great love for you to stand against the tide of the day, to, to stand against the crowd, to become unpopular because they love you and they love your truth and they really loved others and wanted to hear the truth of your word. And Father, we gather here today Celebrating and worshiping in freedom, much of what we do follow uh, and what we do today follows what they did back then when there was this breaking away from a kind of tradition that had muddied the waters and caused a great deal of confusion when it comes to understanding the truth of the gospel. And there was a great setting free of the minds and hearts of people in the gospel of Christ and Father, we are the recipients of many of the wonderful blessings that came as a result of that, and we thank you. And Father, as we once again turn to your word, as we hear the word being read in our language, and as we seek to hear the word of God being explained in our language, as we desire, Father, to understand what it says and what it means, Father, even this act alone is a result of what took place at the Reformation. And we are grateful. We pray, oh Lord, that we would never take this for granted, never take it lightly, that we would always cherish it. And fathers, we dig into 2 Corinthians again. We ask for your blessing on our time in your word. And we do thank you for it and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Paul writes in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for, I cause, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pain? I wrote as I did, so that when I come, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. 
For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we should not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So last week, as we kind of looked at the passage where Paul talked about his change of plans and some of the rumors that that others had been influenced by concerning him, the attempt really at character assassination. We kind of took a look at that so that we we could kind of understand uh, why Paul brought all those things up. We talked about our conscience and living according to our conscience and what that would mean. uh, And and so Paul kind of continues that. He's now kind of bringing it down to what he wants them to do because they're very much involved in this. Remember that it was not just an instance where he was maligned and it's him against an individual and everyone else is everyone else are basically spectators. Everybody had been, or a majority of people, had been drawn into this tension and conflict. So it, was, it wasn't just about maybe an individual or a small group of individuals in Paul. People had formed their opinions. People had formed sides. People were being influenced, pro and con, towards Paul and others. The unity of the church was deeply affected by all of this. And so Paul wants these things to be resolved. And he's going to get into how that needs to be done. And so he is really leading the way, which on one hand would be kind of unusual from, from this perspective, that normally the one who has, has been the target of the wrongdoing usually is not the one who's leading the charge to resolve all these things. Normally the one who's the target of these things is the one desiring to be vindicated. That's the charge they're leading. Paul doesn't do that. He, mentioned, he does mention, again, as we've already mentioned, that, that he uh, defended himself, but he didn't go on and on and on about that. The goal was to move towards what he's talking about here. So basically, what he's pointing out, what we can gather from reading the text, is that a member of the Corinthian church caused Paul a great deal of pain. I used to believe that automatically that the individual he's talking about here was the man who was caught in adultery back in 1 Corinthians. But the more that you read it, it might be him, but this may be something else entirely. It's not necessarily that guy. In other words, we can't be dogmatic and say, oh yeah, it is that guy. It may be, and if you still believe that, it's fine. If you believe it's another, that's okay. Remember, that man was living in open fornication, um, and so that's why some immediately kind of make that connection. It could have been an individual who publicly challenged Paul's apostolic authority, maybe challenged his character. Paul, as we know, did make a quick visit to deal with a, the problem that was there before. He had also written him a letter that we don't have that was kind of painful. The idea is where he's kind of bringing out these issues and kind of faces them head on. And, and so, again, this, this is not a small thing that's taking place in the church. But Paul's desire was that the church as a whole obey the word, discipline the offender, and bring about purity and peace to the congregation. That's, that's what he was really about, and that's what he wanted for them. I think he also knew that his words would wound those he loved. He loved these people. But he knew that there was no way to deal with this without individuals, I guess, maybe having their pride hurt, maybe having their feelings hurt, that kind of thing. 
And so he didn't look forward to this. It's kind of, you know, when our, you know, when our kids are young and they've done some things and we know we have no choice, we have to punish them, we have to discipline them, and we don't really want to. And it can, sometimes it can cause us a great deal of pain. I mean, everybody makes these jokes about parents who say to their kids, this will hurt you more than it does me. You know, and the kids are like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> but there is some truth to that. There are times when that is true. So Paul knew that there was a big difference, in saying it this way, in between, between hurting someone and harming them. It's kind of like we do this in football. You know, we, you know when you, if you play football and you coach football, there's always bumps and bruises. So there's a difference between being hurt and being injured. And so we kind of get on the player sometimes, and it's like, okay, son, are you hurt or are you injured? Because if you're hurt, get back in the drill. Right? You're, you're bruised, you can go home to mommy, or you can go back in the drill and, and do whatever. If you're injured, we have a trainer. I know that. So those of you who are uninitiated, it sounds kind of tough and, you know, no mercy there, but that's why we have our sons play football. Right? That's important. You don't want your kid growing up and every time they're hurt, they quit. Right? Pain's a part of life. That's why football is so great. Anyway, we will go on. <laughs> but the idea there is that sometimes, and we know this is true, that those who love us must be hurt by us in order to keep them from harming themselves. And so sometimes pain is the only way. In fact, oftentimes, because we are very stubborn, pain is the only way that we're going to learn. So Paul could have exercised his apostolic authority. He could have commanded the people to respect and obey him. But what he's trying to get at is he wants them to do what he's saying, but he wants them to do so because of his patience and love towards them and because they're developing patience and love. He wants them to become convinced that this is the way to go and not only do it because Paul commands it. We should also note that when Paul writes this letter, he doesn't mention the name of the man who had opposed him and divided the church. You'll notice that in the Bible, that when it comes to individuals who are named, individuals who in the Bible are speaking negatively about someone, it seems to be that that at least they are guilty of something very egregious or most often what they're guilty of is something along the lines of false teaching where they're, they're going to be affecting a, a large number of people in, in a spiritual way and names are written down, names are read out. Don't be like so-and-so, he divides the body. This individual who's gone against Paul, if Paul's not even going to mention his name, many of them may have known who it was, not the point. Paul also knew, as, we, as we've seen before, that you know, all the letters that Paul wrote, you know, they make their rounds. You know, there's this, the letters written to those in Corinth, but that letter would have been sent on to other churches, and they all would have read it. And Paul's not concerned about this individual's name being out there, because he truly does forgive him. He, his, his desire is for the issue to be dealt with in this way. And so again, he doesn't he doesn't name the man who, who we think opposed him and really ended up dividing the church. So there was, uh, you know, there was some pretty serious events that took place afterwards. Paul did tell the church to discipline the man for his own good. It seems to indicate when you read through this that the church did that, that they held a meeting, they disciplined the individual, that he repented of his sins and he was restored. 
So I want to look at some details of this so we can draw some things out of this uh, to help us in our understanding not only of the text, but then how we are to, again, live our lives as Christians, as individuals, and then also collectively as a church. So look at verse 5. He says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So again, Paul recognizes what has happened. And as he deals with this, he, he is stating that, again, when this individual moved against Paul, it, Paul was not the only individual who was pained. This ended up affecting a large number of people. But, but he says not to say it too severely because, again, his goal is not to rip this individual to shreds. This individual is a part of it, but this is what happened. Right? This is what happened. And, and so we have to face this. Paul, his real concern, again, then is not the pain or tension that was brought into his life, but again, the harm that it brought to the congregation. John MacArthur says this, Paul had nothing but love and forgiveness in his heart toward the person who had wronged him. And he was not about to let that individual steal his joy, impair his usefulness, or become the dominating issue in the Corinthian church. Paul exemplified the forgiveness that Jesus commanded. That's what drove Paul. He taught Paul is this very tough-minded individual. He is driven by his love for Christ and driven by his love for the people. And that then means that in this very stubborn way, he is just not going to let this individual negatively affect the way he thinks and the way he handles issues. That, this tough-mindedness is part of what it means to be tough-minded as a believer. It's not that we're somehow, in a sense, macho. It's that we, we are not easily swayed from the path that we are to follow as Christians. Regardless of what people do or say, we don't get caught up in the fray. Especially if it's only about us. We live in a culture where it's all about us. The moment somebody ruffles our feathers, oh man, we just get all up in arms and it's all about us. You know, many times when people leave churches, it's because their feelings were hurt or things didn't go their way. Just so you know, that's wrong. That's not what we see when you read through First and Second Corinthians. That's not how we are to handle things as believers. What we are to do is we are to strive for this unity to exemplify really the power of Christ and that we follow Christ first, regardless of what happens. He goes on in verse 6, and he says, For such a one, that's the one who's caused all these issues, this punishment by the majority is enough. So he says this punishment is sufficient. The punishment was severe enough. The word sufficient here implies that some may have wanted to get a few more lashes in, so to speak. Paul is basically saying enough is enough. In fact, the Greek word for punishment, which is uh, epitomia, conveys the sense of causing this one to suffer what they deserve. So when it comes to the specific action that was taken by the church with this issue, it's not stated what it was specifically. It could have been anything from rebuke to a formal removal of participation in the, in the life of the body. Basically, they were barred from partaking of the Lord's Supper. You know, when we get to the point in church discipline when someone is, in a sense, excommunicated, the idea there is, you know, that's one of the ways uh, that if the individual refuses to repent and turn from their sin, 
you know, that's where you get. We don't know what happened here. Whatever it was, it was public. We know that, but then the specifics, we don't know if it was just this rebuke where the entire church was informed, what the individual did and all the details, or if they even went that far. But it also says here, if you read, when you read, sometimes, you know, you don't want to skip over all the words. He says, the punishment that was inflicted by the majority. Now, that, that's an easy word to skip, but it implies something really important. Paul, as an apostle, though he had the right and the authority to do so, he was not the one that was enacting all this action. It was the church. It was the church's responsibility. The church then acted in this way. So even though he was called an apostle, even an apostle to the Gentiles, this did not remove the congregational aspect of responsibility to lead and to act. They were to be, they were to move as one. Now, obviously, he says the majority, so it was whatever they did, it wasn't unanimous. But the church moved as one and, and dealt with this issue the way that it was supposed to be dealt with. That, that's, that's the part that the world really doesn't get and understand. You know, the world is so fickle when it comes to, you know, who's guilty of certain things and who's going to be punished. It's just a mess out there. It, it's, just, it's just unbelievable how it goes. And we need to be very, very different from all of that. Where we face things just head on. And, and the goal is, is, and we don't allow there to be, the goal is not to allow there to be, you know, all this gossip and all this wondering about, well, I wonder what motivated them. You know, sometimes it just doesn't matter what motivates you. What you did was wrong, and that has to be dealt with, period. There is no motivation at times to, that justifies what you did. It, it, it's not there. What you did was wrong. And here, this individual, it doesn't matter what his motivation was. If, if this is what he's talking about, this individual who came against Paul... There's the wrong way to handle it, period. There's just no way to get around it. And so they then acted as they were supposed to, and the church did take action. He goes on, though, because he wants to make sure the church knows that they're not done. And he says in verse 7, So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The Amplified reads this way, So instead of further rebuke now, you should rather turn and graciously forgive and comfort and encourage him to keep him from being overwhelmed, overwhelmed by excessive sorrow and despair. So the idea then when it comes to, if, you want, if we want to call it just church discipline, and so we'll just go ahead and use that phrase. It can mean a lot of things as far as the specific action. But the idea is, is that when action is taken, it's not about continuing to see that the individual. It's not about continuing to pile it on. You know, it's not about, well, I, you know, guess who I saw at Carrie Hilliard's the other day? Yeah, the guy we kicked out of the church. It's not how we go about talking about those things. The, the idea is not to kind of, you know, do this kind of thing to them. You deal with it, punishment is taken, now it's about restoration. It really is. It's about bringing, so, you know, we live in this, we want to use the, the, uh, the words of the day, we're not trying to cancel anybody. It's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to restore them. Even when you kick someone out of the church, the goal and what we pray for is what? Should be restoration. Always. Even though at times, maybe many times, we don't believe it will ever happen. But it can, because God can change hearts, absolutely. 
And we need to be open to that and ready for that. In fact, wanting that to happen. So Paul says that they are to forgive. They are to comfort the repentant offender. The word comfort there, again, is a word that you've, you may have heard this before about the word comfort. It's the word parakaleo in Greek. And it's a word which means to come alongside someone. So we have this word comfort, but the way that it's done is it's a very personal thing. You come alongside the individual. So you don't treat the individual like an outcast. You don't treat them like a leper. You treat them as a brother in Christ, as one who has been reconciled. Remember that in this treatment that he's asking to, to, to uh, kind of uh, behave in a manner towards this individual is the one who's repented. He's repented. So the goal of church discipline is, the, is for someone to repent. This one has done that. Once that is done, now this is the next step. We don't just say good and then go on our, on our way. No, we're still concerned for the individual. And we, and we want to make sure we take it all the way to the end. And the end then is making sure that we comfort them so that there is this actual restoration. So for the Corinthians to not forgive this individual who has repented would be sinful. It would steal their joy. In fact, it, would even, it might even bring God's chastening on them. If you read from uh, Matthew chapter 6 and chapter uh, 18, you will see that. Unforgiveness, I believe, would render them unfit for worship. So this is not a small thing. Forgiveness, however, does not require, if this, church, if, if this individual was, was in a position of leadership, it does not necessarily require that the church at that moment reinstate the person into a position of authority. We don't have time to deal with that now. I, I think that there's a time when that can be done, but it definitely would not be immediate. There's different reasons for that. But it does mean that the individual is reinstated into fellowship. That means we participate together in the Lord's Supper. We, we reach out to them, basically embracing them, making sure they understand that we love and we care for them, that, that they have truly been forgiven. The word comfort there, then, is basically where we are trying to encourage them to live a life worthy of the gospel. So it's not then that they just feel better about themselves and the guilt is gone. It's not about that. It's, it's about going beyond that, going back to being on the right path as a believer. And so as we live together as believers, and as we move along the way, when someone messes up, even to the point that it has to be made public, we deal with that, they repent, we then not only forgive them, but we put our arms around them to comfort them, not just to make them feel better about themselves psychologically or emotionally, but to make sure they continue on the path that we both were on before to mature in Jesus Christ. That's what we need to make sure that we do. So we're not trying to make them feel comfortable about their past sin. We do want to lead them to and through godly sorrow, where they will understand, as well as accept the forgiveness that comes from God. We are then to live triumphantly as believers, knowing that our sins have been forgiven by God. Our sins, and if you're guilty of something recent, your recent sins. Instead of living under an excessive, all-consuming guilt that will only destroy life and not bring life. The past disgrace 
may continue to burden may continue to burden the offender. And so we want him to know that he or her to know they don't need to carry the load alone. But fellow Christians will help bear it up. So you see, when they have repented and they're still feeling the weight of guilt, our attitude is not, well, good for them. They need to feel what they've done. Ooh, time out. Uh, they were punished. We've forgiven them. Whatever they've suffered is sufficient. We now help. Now, I'm not trying to take it away. I can't. But I can help them carry that. I can remind them that I'm not holding that against them. That helpens, helps them. It lightens the load. There's a sense of relief. We want to know that others don't hold that against them. We don't pretend that what they did wasn't wrong. So we don't say things like, oh, you need to get over it. It wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, time out. Uh, you brought it before the church. So we don't say that. See, that's when we get in trouble. Because we become overly concerned about the way they feel, but we end up offering the wrong kind of help. So we're not trying to minimize what they've done. Now, we're not trying to, we don't try to rehearse it. So, oh, yeah. I mean, I understand why you feel guilty. If I had done what you had done, man, I would have moved to Montana. Okay, we're not doing that either. But the idea is that we truly care. And so, again, a good way to do that, I think, just, you know, is we try to relate in our mind, how am I going to relate to this individual? If that was your son or daughter, how would you treat them? If they repented, you would not tell your son or daughter to move to Montana. Right? And you might be tempted if it was your son or daughter to say it's not a big deal, but that would be harmful to them. But you are going to let them know that you love them, that you don't hold it against them, that there are many others who love them and have forgiven them, and that we, we're, we're in this together. And, we're going to, and we want to make sure they get on the right path. That's kind of the idea that Paul is getting across here. This is what John Calvin said. John Calvin said, Severity is required in order that wicked men may not be made more bold by being allowed to go unpunished. For this is rightly said to be an enticement to sin. But on the other hand, there is a danger that a man who is disciplined will fall into despair so that the church must practice moderation and be ready to pardon anyone as soon as it, is, as it is sure that he has sincerely repented. So again, we are looking for signs or evidence of sincere repentance, absolutely. But again, as he says here, we are practicing moderation and we are ready to pardon. In fact, he goes on in verse 8, as we mentioned before, he says, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. John Barton says this, the Greek word for reaffirm here suggests a legal act. The fact that Paul used a legal term with the Greek word agape, meaning selfless love, really is remarkable. Paul was asking the Corinthian church to confirm the membership of this man in the community of love, the church, in a public and official manner. So the idea was is that he was rebuked publicly. The idea is that, that we want publicly to acknowledge that this individual is, in a, in a sense, reinstated. We want to reaffirm our love privately and publicly to this individual. So yes, they are the focus. Now, what we don't want to do is what the world does, is where we, then we, we become judgmental in this way. So, oh, well, what about the victim? Somebody could say, well, what about Paul? 
So we're making a big deal about this guy and reaffirming our love to this guy. What about Paul? He was the victim. Well, Paul, being a mature believer, he's already said, hey, I've already forgiven the guy. That, that's past. We want to make sure this guy's not swallowed up by too much despair. So you, you see how there's this, this all-around concern. It's not about focusing one on one and diminishing the other. It's really about both. And we're able to do that in Christ. But again, we're not going to be able to do this like Christ if you and I are not on a regular basis growing as believers. If your heart and my heart is not on a regular basis being uh, affected by the word of God, if we're not feeding on the word of God, then you are going to be in the same place you are now that you were 10 years ago. And bitterness 10 years ago could have easily entered your life. It's just a sad, it's, just, it's shameful that bitterness can enter your life just as easily today. It should be much more difficult for bitterness to enter your life today than it was 10 years ago as a believer. And so that's why we need to make sure that we are growing as believers and recognize then the signs that something may be amiss in our walk with the Lord in fact, Paul says, this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. So the letter, again, is kind of severe. He, he demanded disciplinary action, which was taken. Uh, but also, he intended to test their obedience. Paul was not, in this testing of obedience, it's not that he wanted them to obey him. He wanted them to obey the gospel and the implications of the gospel. He, he, wanted, he wanted them to... Um, Instead of, instead, of them coming, instead of him coming in person and exacting discipline, again, he wants the church to be a part of all of this, to accept corporate responsibility, carry out the discipline and the restoration themselves. He really is trying to remove himself from this. Even though he may have been the target in the beginning, it affected a lot of others, and his concern truly is for them. It's not about himself. That's why he says in verse 10, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, and I believe what he means by that is in his mind as a mature believer. So he's not stating that what the individual did was nothing. But as a mature believer, he views it as being diminished. It's not that big of a deal to him. He doesn't see personal attacks as that big of a deal. He really is more concerned as to how it affects others. And so, you know, we can tell this man is, he's, he is close to the heart of Christ. Jesus was the one who was accused of things he had never done. Paul knows, he's, I had mentioned before, he knows he's the chief of sinners. But he still is just, he's not going to get caught up in these things. And so again, he says, if I have forgiven anything, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So again, he reiterates that his primary concern was for the fellowship to be restored, for there to be unity in the church. Ray Stedman says this, there are no hard feelings expressed by Paul, or he doesn't want any hard feelings expressed by the congregation. No recriminations, no, well, I can forgive, but I can't forget attitude. None of that. Forgiveness is a promise. There are many different books written on forgiveness, a lot of individuals have made these same observations. There's anywhere, what individuals would say is there's anywhere from three to five promises that you make when you forgive. 
We're going to look at three of them rather rapidly right now. When we forgive as a church, these are the promises that we're making. When you forgive someone in your life, these are the promises you're making. When you and I forgive, you and I as Christians have no choice. We do not have the right to ever not forgive. There will be times, maybe oftentimes, that you and I cannot forgive immediately. I'm fine with that. We should always be moving towards that. It can never be after five years, well, I'm still working on forgiveness. Whoa, now we got a problem. That should never be the case. But it's not based on how you feel. Some people say, well, you know, I just want it to be genuine. So, you know, when I really feel, no, forget that. That doesn't work. Feelings are going to follow what you decide to do. If you're waiting for your feelings, you may wait the rest of your life. The idea is that we need to do what is right. Just because you may not feel like forgiving does not mean it's not genuine. You can genuinely forgive an individual, make these promises and struggle in keeping them, but your heart will be made right by God because you're doing what is right. And we, and we need to get back to that and, re, and reverse the way that we have kind of uh, lived our lives as we kind of accept the way that the world wants us to live. So the first promise is this. The first promise we make when we forgive an individual who has offended us and now has repented is that we are saying to them, I will not let my attitude toward you be governed any longer by this offense. That's, that's a lot. Because you are making this decision. You're not waiting for how you feel. You will not, you will not allow your attitude to be governed any longer by that offense. It doesn't mean you're not going to feel sometimes, maybe anger again at the individual. But you're refusing to allow it to govern your actions, your thoughts, and your words. You are making a promise that you will never bring it up again. Second promise is a promise not to pass it on to anyone else. This means that you're not going to throw it at them again. You're not going to hold it over their head. You're not going to remind them of it every time any other kind of difficulty occurs. It's a promise to drop the matter, leave it in the past, and never bring it up to anybody again. You drop it. It's a choice that you make. There will be times when you'll be tempted to bring it up. Something else happens. And we're thinking, there they go again. Just like they did 14 months and a week ago. And we always say we're not keeping track. Sometimes we just do it automatically. You, you don't have a calendar, but you know, there's, you know how it is? Certain people just remember certain numbers. Just kind of weird that way. Well, when it comes to people who may have embarrassed us or betrayed us, you know, that kind of thing goes on. Yeah, I mean, it was a long time ago, July of 1988. I mean, that was just, you know, you may not say that, but it's in your head. But this is what that promise is. Then thirdly, it's a promise to yourself, basically, that when your memory goes back, which as a human being, it can and maybe often does, hopefully just occasionally, you, again, are not going to allow it to seize hold of your heart and make you angry all over again. You decide that you will not do that for the cause of Christ, for the sake of Christ. You and I, as we pray about the situation, 
When we forgive someone, we then also should pray for ourselves and ask God to give to us the strength that we need to keep these promises. And ask the Lord to help us that when we remember what that individual has done, and sometimes, maybe it's often, but sometimes when we remember, we remember a lot of details. I mean, we remember what kind of clothes they were wearing. We remember the weather of the day. I mean, all those things come flooding back. But the bottom line is, is that you decide that you will not allow it to seize your heart. That's hard, especially in the beginning. But God can and will give you the strength to overcome. It's not magical. Again, back as believers, we need to continue to grow and submit our lives, our minds, our hearts to the Word of God. Allowing the Word of God to change us. Allowing the the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to make us more like Jesus Christ. But that is, that is, that is what, that's the goal for all of us. And why do we do this? Now, Paul is saying all this in the context of the church. So he answers this. Why? Why do we need to make this promise? In the context of the church, verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his, design, of his designs. See, Satan is brilliant. He's been around people for 6,000 years. He's learned a lot of things. He knows a lot about us. He knows what makes us tick. And he knows this kind of thing. He knows it can get under your skin and remain there. And so he's going to do what he can to outwit you and these promises that we make when we forgive because we understand his cleverness defeats what he wants to do before he gets a chance. Because he does want to defeat and get rid of the unity that believers have. The main reason for that, you know why the main reason for that? The main reason for that is because that will hinder our walk with the Lord. It will stunt our spiritual growth, which in turn will inhibit our ability to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who are lost. And he's a happy camper when that goes on. An inappropriate, unforgiving, angry, prideful attitude on the part of the church opens the door for Satan to come in and disrupt fellowship. Human thinking and language are skills And language skills are part of the image of God. And those are wonderful gifts that can be used for good or for evil. And so as believers, we must guard our thoughts and our words. Our minds can be tricked. We can be blinded and we can be manipulated by Satan. And so Paul suspected that Satan would find an opportunity in prolonged discipline to discourage the disciplined man and also to harden the congregation's heart. And that's why Paul then, all this stuff he brings up about what was going on in the church, which seemed to be focused on him, that's why he brings all that up. Because this church is going to be there after he's dead and gone. The the church is the body of Christ, and he wants to see that flourish. And we should desire the same thing. Because whether it's our children and our grandchildren or the children and the grandchildren of other people, we want the church to continue faithfully worshiping and living out the word of God. We want to see that happen. We want to see human flourishing. And human flourishing is not that everybody has a six-figure income or whatever the case may be, but that we are truly able to live and get along and enjoy each other, love each other, love the Lord, and just that joy is just multiplied in our life. That's what that means, and that's what Paul really wants for them. And that's what we should want for ourselves as well. So first of all, as individuals, you need to make sure as a believer in your life that you have forgiven 
others that have betrayed you or embarrassed you or hurt you in the past. It's vitally important as a Christian that you do that. If you don't do that, your worship of God is, is hindered. But also you are in danger, if it's not already happened, of becoming bitter and cynical. Maybe just a little bit, but that's all it takes to infect others. And it will inhibit your ability not only to, to worship the Lord and experience his joy fully, but it will inhibit your ability to influence others for Christ, both the believer and non-believer. As a church, it's important that we, that we follow this. Uh, no matter what stage an individual gets to in church discipline, that we don't just end it then when, when they repented publicly. If that happens, we want to rejoice in that. But our responsibility to that individual is not ended. We want to make sure, because you don't know what's going on in their heart and mind. And sometimes what happens is, is we sit there and say, well, yeah, that seemed to be awful easy for them to tell the church they were sorry. Well, first of all, you don't really know that. You don't know if that was easy or not. And that doesn't matter. To me, the easiest part of your life is just believe them. Just accept their apology wholeheartedly. If it turns out in a few months that it wasn't from the, that it wasn't from the heart, I'm not hurt by that. They are. And we'll deal with that when it comes along. But if I don't accept it at face value, the harm that can be done may be irreparable. It may be irreparable to their life and to the life of the entire church. Besides, think again about this. If it was your kid who's in a church somewhere and your kid messes up royally and they're brought before the church and your kid repents, would you want that church to embrace your child and to reaffirm their love to them? Or sit there in cynicism and say, oh, it was easy for them. I'm not sure they really meant it. That would, that would make you angry. You would say, what kind of church is that? It's because you know your kid. It's because you love them. That's how we are to be with each other because we love each other, we will willingly accept their act of contrition and embrace it at face value. We have nothing to lose if we embrace that. Nothing at all. Because there's a way to deal with it if it's not genuine. And it's only good things to come if it is. Because again, Satan, he's a wise, clever fellow. And he wants to use whatever he can to disrupt your life and the life of the church. And we need to be aware of that and take the measures that honor the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and really his tremendous growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know, Lord, he was brilliant, but we know, Lord, he was not just a man who had maybe all of the, of the Old Testament memorized. We know that he was more than just a brilliant individual who understood philosophy and all those things. But he was a man who, was, who had submitted himself to the word of God. A man who understood his own sinfulness and fully embraced the wisdom of scripture and lived in obedience to all that you've said. We thank you, Father, for his incredible example. Pray, Lord, that we would take the wisdom that's been handed down to us and that we each, each one of us would fully embrace that. 
and live out the word of God. That we would become more like Christ individually and collectively to your praise and glory. Knowing, Lord, that if we do all the things that are right, our joy individually and collectively will be multiplied. And we desire to see that, Father. We do thank you. Thank you, Lord, for never giving up on us. Thank you, Father, for your continuing presence. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.